Hi, I'm Albie Selznick. You might remember me as the juggler in Star Trek The Next Generation, or Tac Tac or Tash, two characters I did for Voyager. And you are listening to Trek Untold. And welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. There are some actors who are just perfect for Star Trek, whether it be a look or a certain skill set. If it's a Starfleet officer, they tend to have a certain authoritative quality about them. Or if they're a Klingon, there's something strong inside them. For today's guest, Star Trek found some great ways to utilize his unique talents combined with his acting chops. Not to mention not being claustrophobic while sitting in the makeup chair. And that actor today we're going to be speaking with is Albie Selznick. Albie appeared in the Star Trek franchise three times, beginning with his role as the unusual-looking alien known only as the Juggler, who you may have seen in Loxana Troy's special hologram program that she shared with Alexander Rojenko in the TNG episode Cost of Living. Next, Albie showed up on Season 3 of Voyager as the Tok Tok console from that really awesome episode titled Macrocosm. Finally, Albie donned the alien makeup one more time to play Tosh in the Season 6 episode, The Voyager Conspiracy. Now, he also has a fourth uncredited role in a Voyager episode that was quite an important one, but you're going to have to wait until we get a little bit deeper into the interview to hear about that one. I'm going to keep that one close to my chest this time. Outside of Star Trek, Albie can be seen in films and shows like Xanadu, Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, with his group The Mums, who we're going to talk about today also, The Twilight Zone, Beauty and the Beast, Night Court, Ricochet, News Radio, Suddenly Susan, CSI, NYPD Blue, 24, Desperate Housewives, Dexter, The Young and the Restless, Castle, and a whole lot more. Albie is a charismatic ball of energy. He is perpetually in motion and quick with a joke, but don't be fooled. He is just as insightful as he is a jokester, and he takes what he does very seriously. He's passionate and enthusiastic and always gives 110% of himself in everything he does, including this interview. So, get ready to experience the world according to Albie Selznick. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe you want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. 
If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. Now, join me on the other side of the screen, the gentleman who's, you know, I say this a lot on the show, it's a face you will recognize, but you're not going to recognize because it was covered up in a whole lot of makeup in Star Trek times. And Oh, he's oh you can't hear the blur thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, me, me in the makeup chair, one of my many, many hours. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, that is Tosh, and the man holding that photo, that is Albie Selznick. Albie Selznick. This is the other the other guy, the juggler, one of them. <clears throat> yeah, hi, everybody. Hey, welcome to the show. Yeah, we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about, because you have had a very interesting and very diverse career in performing. There is a lot to dissect here. A lot I didn't know about you that I'm really excited to learn about and, and share with my audience. So, uh, yeah, Thanks, Albie, let's, let's jump right on in here. Let's just start at the very beginning. What is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching it? I did. Yeah, I I was there when when it was on every I don't even know Wednesdays or whatever. I remember the shot with when Kirk was with the the green lady, and I just I remember them like making out, and then the neck, and then cut to he's putting on his shoes, <laughs> and you're like, wow, well that just happened. <laughs> That's the birds um, and the bees in Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I I you know. I thought, and Dr. McCoy, and I thought, by the way, um, the guy from uh, Carl Bourbon did a great Dr. McCoy uh, yeah. impersonation. My, my dad had died when I was a kid, so I got really into fantasy. I, my, you know, all my shows, all my movies, everything I did were, were fantasies, and, and I became a magician. And it, it helped me to um, kind of get through the, the sad, uh, you know, horrificness of, of, of my life. And so Star Trek, was one of my favorite shows because of that, you know, along with, you know, the Munsters and, you know, the Adams Family and, you know, uh, anything that had some kind of a fantastical element. I've always been a sci-fi fan. I mean, I've read, you know, all of them. Um, and uh, uh, I, I mean, I was a, a, a Trekkie before there were Trekkies, you know, but I, I never I've never been to Comic-Con. We have to change that. We have to get you out. Of, have you not done any signings or anything like that? I, I tell you something. I one day I, I I did a signing. I don't think it wasn't Comic Con, but it was something else. But um, because I, I I did you know three different characters, and then I did another thing that I guess we'll talk about when I came up with the language. But um, I didn't. I wasn't paid to be uh, on a uh, on on a panel. So when you just go and you sell pictures, you're literally buying pictures. You're getting them made and you're selling them, and you're sitting there with a million other people all with their pictures. And, you know, I had my pictures stacked up and people would come by. They'd be like, huh, how much for your picture? And, you know, some people were 20, whatever. I would be like 10. They'd be like 10. Huh. Then they walked to the next person. And I just, I felt like I was like in the, in, in, in the, the red light district in, in, in Amsterdam, you know, with people deciding if they were, and then one, and, and I was just there for like an hour and this kid rolled up in a wheelchair and he was like, um, how much for your picture? And I was like, oh, geez, just take one. Just take them all. And I, I just felt so, like, dirty selling my pictures of myself. So I just was like, I'm out of here. And I just gave my pictures away and left. <laughs> I couldn't do it. 
And I have to tell you, being on the other side, being that person who's walking past everybody, it is a horrible feeling because it's like you want to like get something from everybody because everybody's, for the most part, very, very nice. And it's just like, you know, you only got so many bucks and you want to spend it in the right place. It is, I can imagine it being very demoralizing being the person who's actually the one who's in those photos and selling those photos. So, and yeah, it's, it's, it's not a good experience. Like, I enjoy it when it's good, but when it's not, it feels horrible. Yeah. And, you know, I remember there was like, for some reason, a lot of uh, people from Japan liked TacTac. I don't know why, but they had a thing for TacTac. Um, and you know, other people knew, knew the juggler. I mean, people knew who they were, but like you said, there's thousands of people out there with pictures. And if you're Jonathan DeLarco, you know, who people know because you've done multiple, multiple episodes, it's kind of a different thing than someone who did a, a one-off and I did a yeah. bunch of one-offs. So. Well, not to stir up any bad memories here because you already kind of alluded to something here, but I want to get some more of the, uh, the secret origin story of Albie Selznick. So yeah, yeah. I'd like to hear you know, if you can tell us where you were born who your parents were, and what little Albie wanted to be when he grew up. Well, I, I grew up in Brentwood, uh, LA, uh, in, in Santa Monica, uh, right off of Santa Monica in uh, West LA. My, my dad <clears throat> was a psychiatrist, and my mom was a nursing school teacher. And my dad died a couple of days before my birthday, a couple of days before his birthday, like uh, December 28th, uh, completely suddenly. And my mom's dad died a couple of days before that completely suddenly so when my mom got the call that your husband had died she said no no i'm sorry you you, you mean my father you're mistaken because is my father who died a couple of days ago and they said no no your, your father just died i mean your husband died and she was like what what so i i it was my my house was you know we're jewish there was like a shiva i guess you know people were always there so after my dad my grandfather had died there were all these people in my house and then it kind of died down. And then suddenly I remember one night waking up. I was right before I was, I turned nine. There were all these people in my house again. And, and I went, I went out and, and my, my, uh, my aunt said, um, Oh, go, go back to sleep. And I said, well, what's happening? And she said, Oh, you know, just people here because of your grandfather. And I was like, Oh, okay. So I went back to sleep. And then the next morning I wake up and my mom's crying and everything is my, and my dad had died. And so that feeling of like, I think that's what made me an insomniac because I was always afraid to go to sleep after that because I was afraid, like, what was I going to miss? You know, so <clears throat> I would have dreams that my dad was still not to I'm sorry to bring this podcast down. I would have dreams that my dad was still alive, you know, and I wake up and realize he's dead. So I was like I was going through the tragedy every morning, you know. And so uh, and mom would play. I remember she played Simon and Garfunkel a lot. So it was kind of like. The sounds of silence are echoing through the house. And it was just this really sad time. So um, I got into magic. My mom was trying to find me a hobby. She tried stamp collecting and, and, and coin collecting. And suddenly magic was the thing. And suddenly doing magic kind of made opened me up to the possibility that there's more to life than the, this sad reality. And so, uh, you know, being a little nine-year-old kid who was doing magic, you, you know, you, you're, the possibilities are open. You know, my dad could come back, you know. Um, so so my goal was to, you know, find out if magic really existed. And in the meantime, do magic shows. I did magic shows for like all these kids' birthdays and stuff. And like when I first saw magic, I thought it was real. And then I'd learn how to do the tricks. And then, you know, I would know how the tricks worked. But then when I would do the tricks for other people, they would think they were real. And so I got to sort of vicariously live through them having that aha moment that I, that I first had. And so um, it kind of gave me the thrill, you know, that there was, that there was more out there. So I became a magician, a very serious magician and did it all through junior high school and high school and, 
Um, in fact, I was like, um, I did, you know, I was doing birthday parties, you know, all the time and performing was like, you know, my thing. And then what, and I was very serious. I was like, yell at my partners because they weren't serious enough. And, and then when I, um, when I, uh, found out, um, about David Bowie, when I was 15, he suddenly became like, oh my God, David Bowie is from outer space. He is the man who fell to earth. And I, I really thought that. And so my goal was to like get seen by David Bowie and, and get to work with him. And so like that was kind of my career. For, and I, I I did. I finally did. And so um, I formed this group, The Mums, and we were juggling a magic act that was very, very creative and unusual. We opened for Duran Duran and uh, with uh, an African voodoo act. We opened for Devo with our Bauhaus uh, German act. We opened for Berlin. Frankie goes to Hollywood and and um, Ry Cooter. And then we wrote these plays that that we put on that got very very good reviews in L.A. And we went we did, went to Andy Warhol did Andy Warhol's birthday and he said oh my God I got to put you in Interview Magazine and so in the 80s and 90s we we were called the Mums. In fact, if you go to themums.com, you'll see all of our stuff up there. And so um. Now, I'll tell you a really quick thing is that we were opening for for Devo and we ended up walking out because right before the show, because it's something that 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 we didn't like. And so I got really depressed and I was like, I'm going to just write to David Bowie. And I did with an idea I had. And he wrote me back. And so I corresponded with David Bowie and I got to meet him and he never did this tour. But I thought Scary Monsters as a circus, a Fellini circus would be really cool. And so um, and he liked the idea. And so I have three letters from David Bowie. And so. I'm working on a, uh, my new show is called Letter from David. <laughs> so that's a lot, long answer to one little question. There's a lot to unpack there, Alvy. That's for sure. I yeah. mean, and that's why I asked this question, though, because, you know, I, I really like to have Trek and Tell be the kind of show where it's not just where we sit down and, and ramble about Star Trek, but it's where we really get to know the person and understand mm -hmm. why they do the things that they do. And, you know, to kind of just paraphrase some of the things that I took from your story just now is it feels like a lot of why you went into performing was in particular because you were kind of surrounded by this real somber silence. I'm going to use silence because we talk about Simon and Garfunkel and the sound yeah. of silence, but you were Definitely. literally filled with this melancholy sound as a very young child, very important time in your life. And you just didn't want that. You wanted your life to be filled with more energy and life. And this and was your way of trying to find it again. Yeah. I mean, Mary Poppins, you know, when, when they jumped into the cartoon world, I was like, that's my world, you know? Yeah, because that's going to be real tough. I mean, I, I can say I've, I'm lucky enough that I've not had that kind of experience, but I can't imagine being nine years old and just being in that kind of situation and having to now understand what just happened and what's going to happen for the rest of your life now. And, you know, it's interesting how you were able to, to then find a way to cope. And that was through, I guess, performing arts. Yeah. You know, also, I didn't have a father figure, so I didn't have anybody to kind of guide me in, in that way. So I was kind of always looking for like male role models. And I think that's another reason why I sort of David Bowie became became the thing. But um, and and also not having a dad, it's like you didn't I didn't get seen. My mom was very busy with lots of jobs. And so not being seen uh, is another reason I think pe people get into into performing because you, you want you need you need people to validate that you that you, you, you exist. So in a way, you know, you performing does that. And I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. But, you know, since we're on this topic, I mean, you, know, you have a very, very prolific career. You've done a lot of things. But, you know, you're an adult now and you've been an adult for some time. Uh, at this <laughs> point in your career, I mean, do you feel seen? Do you feel that you've gotten that validation? Oh, gosh, thank you. Um, that's a really good question. I, I, God, I feel like there were um, 
God, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess not because I'm, I'm still thri- still striving to be seen. And, you know, and I'm also, you know, it's so weird when you get a compliment, don't you always go, oh, yeah, nah, okay, yeah. You know, it's like, I, it's just, it's hardwired into us. So, I mean, as much as people have said, oh, you were so good in this or, 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 or I loved you this or, or when I wrote my show Smoke and Mirrors, which was about why I got into magic, um, people would come backstage and say, oh my God, you, you know, you, I went through something similar, you know, hearing your story made me feel really wonderful that, you know, I wasn't the only one and all that stuff. And you feel good, but you're always going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, you can't take in compliments. It's really, really hard to take compliments. And so um, I uh, had, a, I have a, I've had a really hard time with, with, with that, with being able to sort of go, but I will say, Going back um, in my life and think, and you know, you got me at a, at a time where I'm writing the show about my about my life and called yeah. it the letter from David one. So I've been looking at my life, and there are so many different things I've done. You know, I, the magic and the and the acting and uh, lots of commercials and things that kind of define the mums that kind of defined me. Um, and I, so I guess if I look back, I, I'm I'm happy that I did lots of lots of different things that that were successful. Um, but I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> still, still trying to be seen. I think this is something I've been thinking about lately too. Is like a, a life and a purposeful life, and the concept. Yeah, yeah, like yes. It might be something that Definitely. you and I think about right now. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like when, uh, I just saw a great clip actually from Joseph Campbell talking about this. I, I can't remember the entire quote, but uh, you know, basically he was saying how life doesn't necessarily have a purpose. There's not like one purpose. There's just a lot of different things that happen in a life, and if you're just seeking this one ultimate purpose in your life, you're never going to find it. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love Joseph Campbell. He's he sounds though like little like Elmer Fudd when he talks. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> so, one of the New England accent he has. Iron John, and he's like, well, Iron John, you know, yes, <laughs> the power of myth. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll come back to all this stuff because uh, I'm sure okay. it's going to be, I think, uh, tied into your career as well. You know, and uh, let's the talk- hero's journey. You know, the hero's journey is like is the thing. It's been my life. You know. Yeah, I, wrote, I just wrote a a, a movie about a, a hero's journey. I just love that. My is favorite kind of about story. the hero's journey in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's continue on your journey right now, uh, and let's talk a little about uh, you know you're talking about you now your music career, being part of the Mums, uh, and doing magic and that kind of thing. So, where does now performing on stage as like an actor come into play? Because you're you know you're doing stuff that is performative, but you're not you know straight up dramatic comedic actor. You're just doing other things in the realm of performing. Yeah, I, I, I really, I gotta say, I, I really love acting. I, I would say if, I mean, right now, um, if I had to choose between all the things that I've done, I think acting is, is my favorite because, you know, you, you, I've gotten to a place as an actor that I feel really good with. And it took me, a, you know, a thousand, 10,000 hours, you know, to feel good with it. But when you make really cool choices that you're really excited about, I mean, I just like I just love auditioning. Um, and now you can audition at home. You don't you don't go there anymore because of the pandemic. So you audition at home and you send it in. And um, when you make really interesting choices that you can't wait to show them, it's such a fun feeling. Um, magic is kind of all about you know fooling somebody. And I've always in all of my magic I've ever done, it's always to me more about the pattern. It's about the story that I write. Um, and, and how I can do the trick. So I've never, like, I don't like card tricks, you know, or coin tricks or those things. It's to me, I, yeah, they're going to find your card. It just, it's sort of, it's sort of inevitable and boring, but 
how like the tricks that I've always done were very interesting and funny and 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 have uh, stories to them. And so um, that's you kind really of really do like the close up magic kind of thing. You're more about the I guess really the performative part of magic itself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more of a performer than than a magician. Um, but um, so stage acting, I'm a member of a theater company called The Road, uh, which is uh, so fun. I just recently auditioned. Where do you, where, where, where do you live, by the way? Uh, I'm in New York. Oh, God. Well, that's the theater capital of the world. I used yeah. to go to New York for like four days and see eight shows. I mean, I, I had a, a acting teacher named Larry Moss, and he would say, you guys g- go to New York and see a doll's house now. And so I would. I would go to New York the next day and see a doll's house and, you know, six other plays and come back. And I did that for years. I saw... I don't know. Do you ever see, heard of the Pillow Man, Martin McDonough? Um, oh my God! The best, best Billy Crudup, Michael Stolberg, um, Jeff Goldblum, and Ivan Zelvico. I, I can't pronounce his name. Um, it was incredible. I mean, the shows I saw in New York, those make you. And Larry Moss was always great at making you realize that acting is a profound art, and you're lucky to be an actor. Um, but um, I uh, so that would be. I went to New York to try to. Uh, I was going to bring my show Smoke and Mirrors to New York, but it's a whole, you know, a lot of work trying to bring a show to New York. But um, anyways, in L.A., there's a theater called The Fountain, and I just auditioned for an amazing play that Jason Alexander uh, just directed called If I Forget. And um, when you I, and I kicked ass um, in front of Jason, <laughs> which made me feel really good. Also, um, a Star Trek alumni. Oh right. He actually, I was at the Magic Castle once performing. That's a, a private club in, in LA. And he was in the audience. And my partner um, had, had to stall. And I, of course, you know, when someone says, tell me a joke, you forget all the jokes that you, that you know. And I was just kind of like, uh, and Jason said, Albie, you want me to tell a joke? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he got up and told a really awesome, uh, I can't tell that joke now, uh, joke. Um, they're the aristocrats. That's all. Yeah. 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 Just kind of like that. And at the end of the show, I got to say, I'm happy. So this is Andrew Goldenhurst and that's Jason Alexander. Thank you everybody. <laughs> um, but anyways, it was called, if I forget it's playing now, I didn't get the part, but, uh, uh, I tell you though, that feeling of like nailing a part that you could really sink your teeth into was just, I mean, that was, and then doing really well in front of Jason, it was just felt so good. So, you know, it's nothing like stage acting because because you get the audience's you know response and it's like a it's like a you know a, a one it's like a, a, a an organism you and the audience together it's it's nothing like it. Now you were telling me before we started this interview, in fact, uh, who one of your other first acting teachers was. So I guess let's back it up for a minute and let's go oh, yeah. way back in your past and, and look at like how you actually got your start. And if you want to mention what that name was, uh, feel free to here. Yeah, uh, John Delancey was uh, my first acting teacher. It was a he co-taught with a guy named Bruce Gray, who was fabulous, who just passed away a couple of years ago. And John and Bruce were my very first acting teachers. And you know who, who Kate Vernon is? Uh, I don't think I know that name. She was the, the the sixth Cylon in Battlestar Galactica or the ninth, whatever the, the big final Cylon was that you find out at the. Sorry, I just gave it away. Um <laughs> As the, the, the you know the newer Battlestar, the ones that came out well, you know 15, 10 years ago. Um, anyway, she I was dating her sister, and Kate was a she was in Pretty in Pink and a bunch of she was in Malcolm X, and so she she had a lot of work um, behind her. She recommended John Lancey to me. So I guess I think John must be Canadian. Is he Canadian? 
I actually don't know that for a fact, but uh, he, we know he's part of the Q Continuum. I don't know if that's part of Canada. Oh, <laughs> probably. They have all the coolest people. They do. But uh, Kate was Canadian. Her dad, John Vernon, uh, was an actor, amazing actor uh, from Canada. And they, the, the Canadians all know each other. It's like this, you know, little clique. They, they hang out together and stuff. So I think that's probably how I got to John Delancey. So what did he teach you? I mean, what, what kind of lessons from him stand out in your mind? Oh, man. I, got, I just got to say, I have no idea anymore. It was so long ago. Um, you know, for me, it was my very, very first acting experience. So I don't, I, you know, so much has happened since. I probably was just terrified, you know, the entire time. Um, it was, of course, before John was, was Q. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't, you know, famous as far as I knew as an actor. So it wasn't like I was intimidated by him, but I would just, I think I was probably incredibly intimidated by acting because it was, uh, I was a mime and I was a juggler and a, and a, um, uh, you know, a, a magician and a performer, but acting is almost the opposite of that. You know, you, you, you can't hide behind your facial expressions and, and your, your props. You have to be naked and vulnerable and, um, some, unless you're, you're used to that. It's really, really hard to get there at first. And I remember when I was with Larry Moss for many years, and he he called me the donkey because he had to keep hitting me in the head with a with a um with a, a a piece of wood. He said just to get me to learn because I was so so ingrained in me how to perform. But I remember he once got me on stage and said he started talking about my dad, and I started to cry, and it was um the most humiliating and freeing um and beautiful experience i'd ever had on stage and when i walked off i just felt like i was completely been run over and these all these cute girls who i (laughs) I always liked in class suddenly like came up and hugged me and i was like oh so this is how you do it (laughs) so it's really it was really hard for me to get to the place where you can be vulnerable on stage because it's at least I was in my whole life. I've been, you know, taught by myself, I guess, to not let people see my feelings. So, yeah, I mean, you definitely touched on that. As you were saying, you know, you're being the mime, the juggler. There's always something hiding you, whether it's yeah. balls or it's actual face paint. There's always something covering up who you actually are. Or prosthetics. Or prosthetics, <laughs> as we're going to talk about. Yeah. So, it's, no. you know, was that something that was kind of hard for you? Though? I mean, you're saying right now that was the first time you did it very freeing. But as you go through your career and you're trying to become like a serious actor more so and, and less mm-hmm. uh, being the magician and that kind of character, was that a challenge for you to really break out and feel okay to be vulnerable, to feel bad, essentially? Oh, yeah. No, it was it was it was really, really hard. And, um, you it, you know, you have to do less. I remember being on stage once and one of my fellow actors said after a show, just because you're on stage doesn't mean you have to do anything. And, you know, because you, you keep thinking, you know, uh, you have to perform, but you don't. And in fact, Marlon Brando, I remember, said just, just kind of a similar thing. What if once the when the director says acting doesn't mean you have to action doesn't mean you have to do anything or change anything you're doing. Um, and that's that's a very hard lesson to learn for someone like me, especially because as a kid and and feeling not unseen, I didn't feel really uh, worthy and, you know, and that it was OK for me to be who I was. But it was OK to be characters. And, you know, being like the characters on Star Trek, I, I thrived in that because that was my, you know, that's that's very freeing for someone like me. 
Well, I think we're going to come back to this part of the discussion, I think, later on as we get into things. But let's, okay. let's actually start talking a little more about some specific roles you had. And okay. I think one that in particular, I think you're going to be kind of surprised to hear me talk about this one. Uh, but I feel like this particular show that you did was actually like a combination of so many of your skills at once. And it's actually just kind of like a great first look at, at young Albie Selznick trying to find his way in acting. And that would be Freddy's Nightmares. Wow. That's, a, that. that's crazy. You know, the funniest thing is that about a month ago, somebody sent me a, a picture of me as, as the killer mime. Yeah. I was, I completely forgotten about that show. <laughs> and I was like, where did you find this? And he said on YouTube. And so he, he's a video guy. So he actually uploaded it for me in like high definition and I got to watch it. Um, it was filmed at the uh, in L.A. Do you ever have you been to Santa Monica? I haven't been to that part of L.A. yet. No. Well, they have the the Third Street Promenade, and so it had just started to be built at the time, and they had these big dinosaurs um, that they ended up they they were made of iron, and then they filled with ivy, and as the years went on, the ivy filled them, and they became ivy dinosaurs. But um, at the time when we filmed that, they were just these iron dinosaurs because they had just been erected. But I remember it was. Because I got to be a, a human, a normal person, and then you see later I'm the killer vampire, a uh, killer, killer mime. And I remember having it was the first and probably only love scene I've ever had, where I had like sex with somebody. That was a lot you know, of love or, scenes, by the way, too. If I can just interject there, I mean interject bad choice of words, but uh, yeah, that was a lot. I mean, you had like two separate love scenes with Kim Morgan Green in that episode. Is that her name? I, I don't even know her name. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and, we had, and as you hear about other actors always saying this. That was the first day we met was just like, okay, take off your clothes. And, and you guys are having a love scene. Hi, I'm Albie. I am Kim. And talk about vulnerability. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. Well, how did you, well, I guess, did you find it on IMDb or something? Did... I found it. I was able to watch the episode and uh, oh, I have wow. questions. Yeah. I definitely have questions. Cause yeah, like I said, I mean, you are a mime the first half. You, Cause it's basically two stories in one hour long show. And the first yeah. half you're this supernatural murderous mime. And then uh -huh. in part two, you are this thief who spends a lot of time half naked right. with Kim Morgan green. And then doesn't right. have a great time in the end either. But uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, it feels like, you know, this, this really does combine a lot of what you did in one episode. You're, you're so right. You're so right. And by the way, I, I watched it also like for the first time in 40 years, whatever it was, 35 years. I was a pretty good mime in that. Yeah. <laughs> I did some really good, like, little things. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, oh, I'm really kind of glad I, I got that. That's really, um, uh, and thank you for bringing that up. And uh, had, had my friend not brought it up to me a month ago, I would have been like, what? What show was <laughs> it? <laughs> it was so long ago. Yeah, I mean, it's but a it was fun. It's, it's, if you want to watch it again, it's on uh, Tubi right now. In fact, that's where I watched it. And uh, Really? Yeah, so hopefully you get some, uh, some royalties from that. But, uh, yeah, it's totally there. The guy who played the pawnbroker, uh, his brother uh, had directed the episode. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's oh, a weird a show. Like, I, don't, I, I think when it aired, I was just too young to even be able to watch that. I would have been very, very young. But, you know, watching it now, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a little bit campy. Uh, yeah. And it, it seemed like a great place for, like, up-and-coming actors to kind of just, you know, because for you, it really was a pretty meaty role. I mean, that whole episode, yeah. the whole hour was, long thing really is about you. Yeah, it was probably, probably the meatiest role I've ever had. <laughs> you know, Robert England was in those. He was, yeah. And I don't think he got a chance to work with him because he was doing all the interstitial bits. I mean, but have you mm -hmm. ever had a chance to actually uh, run into the man? Um, I don't I don't know if I did. I I, I, I don't think so. No, I don't think I ever worked with him or met him. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little interesting uh, time capsule, if you will, into uh, the early Albie Selznick career. But let's jump and a little what, bit further What is it ahead. on? What, what network is it on right now? It's, it's on Tubi. Tubi. If you go to Tubi, yeah. I'm going to have uh, okay. a, if 
I remember, I'll put some links in it for anybody to watch it. Yeah, it's worth oh, checking that'd be out. Good. The entire series yeah. is there. It's it's such a weird thing, but yeah, a lot of fun. What what was the by episode called? Uh, it was called Silence is Golden. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> So let's jump into something else now, though, that I'm a big fan of, and we talk about a lot on this show, and that is Murder, She Wrote. It's so crazy that you've got something called Trek Untold, and you're also a Murder, She Wrote fan. I mean... And I'm talking about Freddy's Nightmares. I mean, I do all the things, but... uh, Yeah, you do all the things. Well, I'll tell you, Murder, She Wrote was, by the way, the first job, one of the only... Star Trek was actually this the second time. Well, no, third time. I got picked without auditioning. Um. They actually had seen my reel, which was not very big at the time. I hadn't done very much, but the casting director sent my reel to Angela Lansbury. I think even at that point, she was even like deciding on things. And they picked me to play the the son of um, Josephine the plumber, uh, with Jane. Um, uh, I can't remember White. her name, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> she's done a lot of stuff, also. Yeah, and and so. I was I was sure they had made a mistake when they called me and said I got it because I was just like what I never auditioned for that that's so so I thought I was going to show up and they would say like who are you no no it's a different Albie you know we made a mistake but it it, it was actually funny because I'm playing a nerd and I have a you know I, and I remember doing my first scene I have my little bow tie and everything and um, Jane Wyman no um, anyways and, and the director her son was directing and he said you don't have to do anything, you, you know, because I was like trying to be a nerd. He's like, you got the bow tie. You look like a nerd. <laughs> and so I just did it like myself and it came out really good. And funny thing is a friend of mine, George Tovar played the magician in that episode. And so we, we both, this is a ship of fools. And so we both um, were in the episode together and we got to stay on the queen Mary where we filmed it. And the thing about Angela Lansbury is she was she's the most giving actress I think I've ever worked with. I remember doing a scene with her at three in the morning. She had done all of her close ups, you know, and then they moved the camera around and did mine. And she could have easily done what most people would do at that point, have someone else be her and read her lines. So she doesn't have to be there. But she sat there with me, um, you know, completely unnecessary. But wonderful and also made me feel really accepted and and, and seen <laughs> and, and part of the thing. And then I would run into her a few. Uh, she lived in, in Brentwood and I would run into her a few times and she always remembered me and, and was always the most gracious. Her and John Lithgow is the other person I worked for who's just worked with, who is just completely wonderful and gracious and and, and a blast to work with. But she. Um, she then they asked me to do another one. Yeah, um, the Amsterdam Kill. Amsterdam Kill, yeah. Which uh, also, I just had a little part. I played like the belt of, you know, the guy who worked at the hotel desk or something. But really, really nice. Um, great experiences, and just nothing but the best things about her ever. You know. And since you mentioned John Lithgow too, uh, what project did you work on with him? Uh, I played his lawyer in Ricochet. He played an evil Aryan killer. And he's in jail. The role he was born to play. Yeah. And Denzel Washington was in it, too. And uh, in, in our scenes, uh, um, he's going to we're going to the parole hearing. And I say to him, you know, oh, God, I, I, uh, I hate these pro bono things. Oh, well, hi. You know, and I, you know, I am completely blowing him off. And then 
<clears throat> in the parole hearing, I don't, I don't have my papers straight. I don't really know what I'm talking about. I even said Ku Klux Klan, Ku Klux Klan, instead of Ku Klux Klan, which I did by mistake. And the director said, leave it in, because that's what he would say, you know. And I was like a terrible, you know, supposed to be a terrible lawyer. And at the end, and then the next shot is us walking out of the jail, him and all of his Aryan buddies in the suits of the people who were in the parole hearing because they killed them all. And I was leading them out with a gun to my back. Um, and I'll tell you a quick, funny story. I, I don't know why I did this, but when I got the part, I had auditioned for a different part. So when I got the part, I didn't reread the script, which was stupid of me. Because in the read-through with John Lithgow and Denzel Washington and everybody there, including Joel Silver, this gigantic, huge producer, um, at this huge table. And for some reason, I walk in late. And um, and Joel Silver is already talking about the movie. He's like, we're going to have the trailer out even before the movie's done. And and I guess because I was nervous being late, I raised my hand and and said, and say, can, can I be in the trailer? And. <laughs> And everybody laughed and, and 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 it was cool. But then when it came to me doing my lines, uh, you know, I, I did my lines and I thought I was, you know, OK. And then when I got past my scene or what my scenes, I started to go back in the script and look at what I did. Like, oh, that was good. Oh, I could have done better. This was. And suddenly the whole reading, which is going on, is going on, is going on. Suddenly the reading stops and I'm looking at my script and not going over my back pages. And suddenly I look up and everybody's looking at me. And I'm like, what? And the casting person says, you have another line. And I was like, oh, well, what page are we on? <laughs> They're like, 73, 73. Okay, six to exit, please. Like having no idea what that means because I haven't been following along with the script at all. But what that was is that was us leaving the jail with a gun to my back and him saying, uh, and me saying, six to exit, please. Anyway, so... I was sure I would get fired. I should have been fired. I wasn't fired. And uh, Joel Silver, um, in the first scene where I'm walking down with John Lithgow, I'm saying how much I hate this pro bono stuff. Joel Silver standing there right behind the camera, like looking at me like this. And all I could think of the entire time was, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous. And But then I saw it on the white screen, and I looked great. Look like I completely know what I'm doing. And, <laughs> and John Lithgow was so fun that we would, we were talking about Penn and Teller and magic and, and stuff like that. And then right up until action. And then he would suddenly become evil, John Lithgow, evil, evil, evil. Cut. And we go back to talking uh, about Penn and Teller and stuff. And it was just like the funnest time. And then at the end of the shoot, after three weeks, we filmed in a, we filmed in a jail, uh, um, a, a maximum jail. And I would see when John Lithgow walked, I heard some of the, um, the, the, the guys in jail saying, hey, look. There's Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> that was pretty incongruent. But anyway, so um, the last day, I, when I was done, when I was wrapped, I went into the makeup uh, department to it would make a room to get to say goodbye. And I said, "Hey, uh, John, I just want to say goodbye." And he said, uh, "I'm sorry, who who are you?" <laughs> and I said, it, "It's me, Albie. I, I I played your lawyer." Anyways, and then he started laughing. It was just. The joke. And then um, I saw him in New York uh, at a restaurant. Um, uh, I think Balthazar, uh, Belt, no, I, don't, I forgot what restaurant, and Odeon. And um, he was he was in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And I went up and I said, hey, I'm Albie. I played you. He said, oh, come to see my, my show uh, and come backstage and I'll show you around. And he gave me tickets 
Huh. I saw his show. I went backstage. He brought me into his dressing room and we sat and chatted. Like, nicest guy in the world. Yeah, and, and again, at the start of this question here, you know, I said he was born to play the part of an Aryan leader. That's just a joke, folks, because every time I've talked about him in the show or other people, I've never heard anything bad about John Lithgow. I, I met him once at a, a children's book signing, and he was just, like, wonderful. He read, he read his entire book to all the kids there. He did all the voices for the characters he wrote. It, dude is awesome, yeah. Awesome, uh, yeah, awesome. So let's talk about something else, too, since you know, we were on the subject of detectives earlier with, uh, you know, Angela Lansbury and Murray, she wrote. You also worked on Columbo and the episode which is titled Undercover, which, by the way, if you don't remember, uh, just to refresh your memory and everybody who's listening, that episode also had Tyne Daly, Burt Young, and Ed Begley Jr., who we also remember as another member of Star Trek. Uh, oh. So, yeah. What can you tell yeah, us about Ed, Peter Ed, Falk and that show? Uh, first of all, by the way, Ed Begley, I remember um, I also worked with him with, with the moms. He was a... Um, he, he gave me a he introduced the moms once at a, a Disney. Uh, we did like a Disney special and I ate razor blades and he said, kid, and I pulled them out on the string at the end because kids don't try this at home. Rent a theater. And so I've been using that line ever since. I'm stealing uh, that one, too. Yeah. So, so anyways, the funny thing, when I interviewed him, I, I was like doing his interview, like the uh, interrogation of Ed Begley Jr. And um, I said to him, oh, you know, we we're doing the, the shot. And I, I was like. You know, he, he's doing his lines and it comes around and the camera shoots me. And I was like, you know what? I'm so much better when the camera's on the other guy. <laughs> I thought he'd be like, I know, me too. And he was like, oh, not me. <laughs> I was like, thanks, Ed. Um, anyway, so, but what I remember most about Peter Falk, he, he gave me an acting direction. Like, oh, don't, don't worry. Just, uh, uh, well, you know, you just got to be yourself. You know, you just gotta, I forgot what it was. It was something really simple. Just, just think, you know, what, what if, what if I was really saying this, you know, to my best friend or something like he kind of just, it was something like that. It was a very simple thing, but he was like, kind of, he didn't do it in like a mean way. He almost like he was putting his arm around me and sort of giving me a little, a little suggestion to how to do the scene. And it was really wonderful. He sort of took me under his wing. But one thing I remember about him, um, we were re rehearsing, um, we were filming on, on Lankersham and in front of this little hamburger place. And I remember He'd walk up and down the street. He'd be like, he'd be practicing his lines. Wait, wait, one, one more thing. Wait, one more, one more thing. Wait, uh, one more thing. You know, and he would, he would literally be practicing his lines, up, looking just like Columbo. You know, walking up and down the street with that kind of, kind of hunched over, you know, kind of thing that he does. Um, but I've never seen like, you know, you were always told as an actor, oh, you shouldn't rehearse your lines. You should just, you know, ha see how they come out in the moment. You know. But here, there he was, like practicing his lines, trying to figure out the best way to say that line, you know. And I always thought, okay, so you know what? Rules are made to be broken, and people should do. And this is one of the best things I've ever learned about acting. People should do whatever works for them. You know, never should. I mean, I, I hate being as an actor. I don't like being coached. Never helps me. It always, it's always somebody telling me what they would do, basically, or how they think I should do it. But if you find it yourself. It's organic. It's, uh, you know, it comes right from you and it's um, whether they want it or not, it's it's you. And so, um, you know, I, I have a very, except for Larry Moss, who I loved, acting teachers can be um, can be pompous and and, and uh, um, you know, and guru like and they like the feeling of of talking. Uh, there was one in particular. I'm not going to say anything bad about him, but he, um, he's a very famous actor who also had an acting class and he would just talk and, uh, you know, and he, he wasn't nice to people either. So and I'm not going to bring it, I'm not going to bring him up, but anyways, um, it's hard to be a really good acting teacher because you've got to really be able to understand the person and help them get to where they're going 
personally. And so, you know, Peter Falk liked to figure out how to say a line and he did it and he made him, made him a star. You know, he was, he was amazing. Nicest guy too. Yeah. That's, that's a great lesson to get from that set. And also uh, I got to say, it's just a spot on Peter Falk and first nation. So another really cool, quick little thing is that um, I got paid a lot of money for that show because it was a three week shoot. And then the earthquake happened, the 92 earthquake happened. So they had to postpone the shoot and they didn't know when they would continue the shoot. So we got paid all the days while we were waiting for like basically the sets to be reconstructed and everything. So I got paid for like six weeks of straight work, which was um, probably the most I've ever gotten paid, you know, for anything. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using Untold 10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Are you looking for the perfect fashion statement to show you're a geek and proud of it? Well, welcome to Geek Girls Castle, where I make fun and functional geeky clothing and accessories for every occasion. My name is Missy, and I started creating my own gear and apparel in 2015 to bring nerdy products to the geek girl population, which does include all LGBTQA+, non-binary, and POC and BIPOC folks. I couldn't find anything for us gals except t-shirts, so I decided to combine my passion for fashion with my fandoms ranging from handmade skirts with really large pockets, travel accessories like toiletry bags, luggage tags, and zipper pouches. I also embroider nerdy items for home decor like wall hangings and hand towels, and products like keychains, bookmarks, and journal covers. Need something to carry all that in? Well, I make great bags to put all those accessories into or onto. Whether you like Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, Marvel, DC, and everything else in between, there is something for every geek girl. My website is constantly updated with new styles and fandoms, no matter what time or dimension you come from. If you'd like to browse my products or ask for something custom, visit me at geekgirlscastle.com. That's geekgirlscastle.com. All right, well, Albie, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion now. And we got three appearances to talk about. Let's start with number one, and that is... Beam me up, Matthew. 
Let's do it. Uh, we're talking now fifth season of TNG in the episode titled Cost of Living, where you play the juggler, which uh, you took a look at earlier. Uh, and he's this character on the holodeck program that Luxana Troy uses with Worf's son, Alexander Rojenko. So, you know, normally on this show, I like to ask about the casting process and how you got the role. And this time around, I- I'd say this is probably one of the most interested I am in, a- in any role I've talked to with, with someone because they're looking for like a juggler. They're looking for a dude to wear alien makeup. I mean, how the heck was this audition and how'd you land this role? <laughs> It was a very easy part for me in terms of the character. You know, I love that he goes, what are you doing? I'm juggling my worlds. And then at the end, he's sad. And he's like, if you ever have a world, you know, don't eat it. Because he was he had eaten his worlds and uh, he'd eat one of his worlds. Um, and I just I really felt for that that character. Um, and, and his whole kind of, whoo, whoo, you know, I sort of I sort of like kind of came up. What an idea. Bing, you know. I came up with kind of it just fit fit me, you know, it, my, it fit my my character, my personality and that the energy fit really well. I remember when I auditioned, I brought in these little uh, things I got in a toy shop that were like balls, but they had like they had little things coming out of them. So they were like balls with, with little tentacles coming out of them, which I thought would be kind of Star Trek looking. And they were like... Um, and I remember Edward Jackman, another juggler, a very famous juggler, was auditioning too. And I said, um, "Edward, where's your uh, where's, where's your juggling stuff?" And he goes, "I'm not going to juggle. I mean, they know I can juggle." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Oh, okay." So, um, anyways, I juggled my thing. I did thing, and then they said, "Okay, listen, we really like you, um, but can you can you also juggle just normal balls?" I'm like, yeah, <laughs> these are much harder than balls. Um, uh, and anyway, so I, 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 it was really exciting for me. It was like probably, you know, the biggest part I, I had ever gotten, at least for a, in a long time. And they, um, they, uh, it was four hours of makeup every day uh, in the chair. And um, I remember, was it, was it Brett Spiner on that? Brett Spiner was on that show, right? He would come in every morning. We get there at four in the morning, and I'm not a morning person <laughs> at all. We get there at four in the morning, and he would do this years and years of this, you know, every day. And he would fall asleep in the makeup chair for four hours. Like he would get half of his sleep at home and the other half in the makeup chair while they did his makeup. Brett Spiner, by the way, I, I, I read, uh, I was a reader for a movie called Out to Sea with Jack Lemon and um, Walter Matthau. And it was a role really written for Tim Curry. I mean, it was uh, it was had Tim Curry's name all over it. They were really excited to have Tim Curry come in. I was and I, I was really excited to get to read with Tim Curry. But for some reason, Tim Curry is, um, you know, uh, I love him so much, but he is not a great auditioner. And uh, and I saw that firsthand. And it was interesting because he was Tim Curry. He's, yeah. you know, friggin famous Tim Curry. But um he he wasn't uh, he wasn't a good auditioner and Brett Spiner came in and the role was made for an English person who runs the ship and Brett Spiner came in and he said uh, hey I hope you don't mind I took a bunch of scenes and I edited them together and I made my own little sides and uh, we're gonna do it this way and and you know if that's okay with you and they were like okay and he did it and he just he blew Tim Curry and everybody else out of this part because he was just so good. He was also very kind um, and what a great guy. And I also, I said to him, do you like auditioning? Cause I mean, you're Brett Spiner, you're, you're so famous. Wouldn't you rather just get offered the part? And he said, 
He said, I really would rather audition because I want to make sure that they that that they know what I'm doing and they like it. Because you know, I don't want to be offered a part and then get there and have them not like what I'm doing. Then that's horrible, you know. Anyway, so four going back four hours a day, and then also during the shoot, falling asleep in your chair and it being hot because you know, I'm sure you've heard this from everybody. It's it's hot under that stuff. And you sweat under that stuff, but the sweat doesn't come out because it's underneath that stuff. So um, you, your face is like wet with sweat underneath all this prosthetics. Um, but I luckily I had a great character, and it, it was a, it was a joy. Uh, and and uh, Gene Roddenberry's wife was in it. Yeah, Majel Barrett was in it. You get to work right alongside her as well as Brian Bonsell has Alexander Roshenko. And, and just one last note too about the makeup because uh, that was some pretty wild out there makeup. Yeah. And you know, my ears connected. Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask about that because like Mike, Michael Westmore was uh, apparently very, very happy about how the character came out. And he said in interviews like that particular look was something he had wanted to do for a long time. So you were almost like a pet project for him in that regard. Oh, that's awesome. You know, we won a Clio for um, yeah. best makeup. Yeah, it's a uh, uh, it's a phenomenal uh, uh, makeup job. Uh, just uh, incredible. He's he's the, he's the best there is. I mean, I mean, aside from being super sweaty in that thing, though, I mean, how hard was it to work? Because that is, you know, that, that was a lot of pieces. Well, as long as I could see um, to juggle, it was it was fine. I, I, I got, you know, it was a very movable thing that I got to be in. Um, uh, I, I don't remember ever not enjoying every second of that shoot. Um, you know, even the long hours and the sweating and the falling asleep and just I think it was just, you know, you're in Star Trek. You know, I mean, what could be better? And you're working with Gene Roddenberry's wife, too, which that's, you know, legit Star Trek royalty really? right there. Really wonderful too. I mean, she wasn't at all, you know, prima donna-ish or anything. She was, uh, she was just the, the the kindest, most wonderful person. I mean, I would hope so. And, we're, and talk about vulnerability because you got to do a mud bath with Magil Barrett. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We did the mud bath, and I had I had those cups we had were made of um were made of uh, white chocolate. That's what that was. I would I was going to ask about that. In fact, it was white chocolate. Wow, that's that's good. Yeah. That's lucky. I was wondering if it was just like you know popcorn or something, popped rice or something. No, it was delicious. Wow. <laughs> you know, I remember being, I was also in Batman Returns and I had to, I was in the Penguins gang and I was an evil juggler and I was in that for three months. And, um, and we sat in our, we were part of the, you know, the gang of the strong man and a thin man, Doug, Doug, uh, Doug Jones, the, uh, you know, yep. was in it. And, and, and every time Tim Burton would say, okay, let's bring in the strong man. Let's bring up the tall man. Let's bring in the bearded ladies. Just bring in the jugglers. We had all this beautiful makeup. Bring in the jugglers. Okay, take out the jugglers. Okay, good. And we went through that every day for three months. And and I remember I, I would go to a commercial audition callback at during lunch with my scary makeup on, trying to be like a kid's dad, <laughs> working with the kids, and they were just like scared to death of me. But um, see, that was not enjoyable because I we never got to work. We had to sit in the trailer every day, and I finally quit. I finally was like, you know what? Because they weren't paying me with a long contract, they were paying me daily, and I finally just told my partners, I my two other partners and the moms running to just find someone else because I, I I just didn't like I didn't like going to work and not working. That was not fun. I mean, on that note, you know, we're talking about juggling right now, and you do a lot of juggling in the Star Trek episode too. Yeah. Uh, you know, does that get tiring after all? Does it make it harder for you to perform and do your lines because you got to worry about doing this for hours upon hours? I, I really actually um, enjoy it. Uh, I, I'm I'm pretty good at, at juggling and, and and talking and looking, you know. Um, so juggling is second nature. I've been doing it, you know, as long as 
I've done anything pretty much. So it's really easy um, for me. Uh, and, you know, they gave me balls that were perfect weights and everything. So it was actually, it was actually really, it was really fun. Um, I didn't have to do any really hard tricks. I couldn't because, you know, I do do a trick where I catch it behind my neck, you know, all those kind of things you couldn't really do. So, um, you know, I also juggle clubs and lots of other things that are much harder. So the balls are, are, are easy and fun. All right. Well, let us jump into our Star Trek Voyager now appearances with you, Albie. And you've got two of those. And we start in the third season episode of Macrocosm, where you play a Tok Tok console. And you're having many, many discussions with Neelix. And the captain is there, too. And that, that's my Tok Tok for you right there. Uh, Very good. So, yeah, Very it's, good. It's good yeah. there, at least. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. he's the there most extra li- alien in the entire universe. Let's be serious about that. I mean, their entire language is just overly dramatic gestures. That's like the perfect character for L.B. Selznick to do, right? It was, you know, uh, like talking about what I guess we're going to talk about my, when I did sign language. It's two languages. One is what he says and the other is what he's really saying. So. He, it was almost like he's saying nice to meet you, but really he's saying go screw yourself, you know. And so you had to be able to, um, I, you know, I came up with those movements, and they would later ask me to do that again for another another episode. But so I came up with those movements, and um, again, those kind of characters are very freeing for me. I, I feel completely creative when you're wearing a mask of any sort. You you get you just it's it's phenomenal how how fun you can have with a the character. There's no limits. You don't feel watched. You don't feel judged. You're just playing. It's just play. And um, uh, uh, I loved um, Neelix. Um, what's Phillips. his name? Um, what? Ethan Phillips. Ethan Phillips. Yeah, we had the same voice uh, voiceover agent. So I would see him in, in voiceover auditions all the time. And really, really nice guy. And so was she. She was also awesome. Um, Captain. Uh, gosh, she's, got, she's done so, many, so much work since then, too. Yep. Came um, she's, and she's still yeah. genuine nowadays in uh, Star Trek Prodigy. What's, what's Prodigy? That's uh, the new animated series on Nickelodeon. Oh, oh, cool! She plays. She does a voice. He's Captain Janeway once again. She's a holographic uh, version of herself. Oh, how fun! Yeah. Oh my god! And she was just in. What was she just in? Um, oh, she besides just, oh, Orange, Orange is the New Black, but she was in something just more recently. Yeah, she's in the uh, the Man Who Fell to Earth, right? Oh yeah, Man Who yeah. Fell to Earth. Oh my god! Did you see that? I have. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's so good. And when, when he when he says, "Tell my wife I love her very much," and then. The other guy, he, I can't pronounce his name, says she knows, was just like maybe cry. It's, and Bill Nye is David Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> what a inspired choice. Um, I love that. That's one of my favorite shows of all time, Manifold Earth, um, the TV series. Um, well, let me anyways. Ask you a little more about Ethan Phillips and you guys. And so you guys have this rapport already. Uh, so yeah. Curious, you know, Star Trek shows, as I've learned from other interviews, you know, Star Trek shows don't normally have rehearsals. And you and Ethan Phillips have this whole routine where you're doing, again, all of the gestures as you're yeah. communicating. Did you guys rehearse that or was that just pure yeah. improv on the day of? No, well, I think we I think we rehearsed it. Um, I think we met a day. Uh, yeah, we did. We, we met a day in a rehearsal room and I showed him the gestures. And so he could so he could learn them all. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. It was really, really fun. I have to admit, I feel so out of shape, like trying to gesture as I'm talking. So I'm like, this is really hard to talk and, and concentrate what I'm saying while doing all the movements. I mean, that is some. It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a, of a mime robot, you know. It is, yeah. Some of those kind of things, yeah. You really pop and lock when you do that. Yeah, pop and lock it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm curious to know too, uh, you know, because for the most part, we only see your character in that scene, and then later on yeah. when you're talking to Captain Janeway through the monitor, which obviously you're not yeah. in the same room with her. You're doing that a separate day, and that's solo. Yeah. So curious to know. When you did those scenes where you're shooting, you know, talking through the monitor, was that a separate day for you or was it all done uh, on the same day? 
don't remember. Um, I I would think that it it probably was the same day because um, having done you know as many TV shows as I've done, I have learned that if they can in any way have you for one day instead of two days or two days instead of a week, they will figure out how to do that because um, it saves them a lot of money. So um, it must've been one day. Same with Tash, I think. Um, I mean, the juggler was a whole week, but I, I think Tash might've also been probably, I, I would imagine one day. Well, let's talk about Tash now, in fact, because you know that's your final role in Star Trek Voyager. I think that's the meatiest role, right? Uh, I'd say the bunch. And that's the episode Conspiracy from season six. I'll tell you the exciting thing for me about Tash is that that was the third VIP. Remember VIP with Pamela Anderson? Yep. VIP, I played the psychiatrist for all of them uh, out on, a, on an island, uh, which was so fun. I didn't have to audition for that. And I also didn't have to audition for Murray Road, And I did not have to audition for Tash. The third time ever. And the reason is because the director had just directed me in a Zyrtec commercial. And it was, you know, one of those commercials where I, you know, I'm inside and the pollen is coming up and it's it's causing my whole house to be full of full of, you know, um, of weeds and flowers and everything. I'm sneezing and it's horrible. And then I take Zyrtec and I walk out into the, the beautiful day. And um, oh, my God, I, I really should have done my due diligence and <laughs> looked up his name because he was the nicest guy. Really, really great guy. So, he, yeah, he hired me without me auditioning, which was just completely weird because um i i didn't even know that he knew that i had anything that i'd ever done in star trek or that i'd even uh, ever done acting besides the zyrtec commercial but for some reason he thought of me and i got to do it and again that was one of those characters like uh the juggler which i just loved you know it it i felt very you know um i loved him his uh his heart was you know was my heart i i felt for this guy um you know, um, I, I it was, again, a really easy role and, and just he's part of me. You know, I love that. The funny thing also about Tash is it looks like he's wearing a penis on his nose. If you... <laughs> that's, that's basically every Star Trek alien out there. It's either a penis or oh, a vagina on their face. Yeah. Really? OK. OK. So part of the, the, the tribe, so to speak. It's okay. a tradition. OK. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Um, but uh, that was also interesting because I don't know if I have any pictures. So this is me, I don't know if you can see, yeah. um, with the hood on, because in the back of my head is nothing. It's just my own hair. Ah, so okay. unlike the other, uh, unlike the juggler, it didn't wrap around. It just was like, you know, up to here and the spots and then the penis. Old Star Trek face <laughs> penis. So that, that's pretty interesting yeah. to hear, though, because, you know, normally it's like full on all over them. But you actually got a little bit of breathing space. That must have been nice. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a, uh, uh, it, it wasn't tons of makeup. I mean, it was you know around the nose and the and the lips and the, whatever was here, but mostly it was just you know like paint. It's almost like ma- making me look like a, a lizard. Hmm. And of the three makeups that you had to do, which one was the most arduous for you? Uh, I would say the, um, hmm, probably juggler. Well, juggler definitely juggler because I because I was it was there for a week, so yeah. it was every day of that, and. Um, Probably Tac-Tac was, was the least. Hmm, okay, that's least, surprising. Yeah. But now that you told me the secret behind Tac-Tac and, and his hood, that makes a lot more sense. Or Tasha, I mean, and so, yeah. I also did a Buffy in the Vampire Slayer where I was a monster, and that was much worse makeup. I think the, uh, not to, no, so my cousin directed it. I love my cousin. But um, for some for some reason, working with Westmoreland's team, 
was just was a, a much easier. I think uh, for some reason Buffy seemed to be uh, I don't know just getting it off was just impossible. Whereas these guys who just like and I had to do a commercial the next day at like six in the morning after Buffy and I still had like pieces of the makeup on me, um, the prosthetics like still glued on. Somehow they use some weird glue or something. Whereas these guys just wipe it right off and it comes off in five minutes. And there's nothing you want more than after twelve hours of being in that stuff to be able to just take it off in a second. That's one of the things I think they really mastered on Star Trek, especially because they did that so much, is like how to get it off in decent amount of time and also not killing your skin. Cause I, I've talked to, uh, you know, we had Armin yeah. Sherman on the show a while ago and he basically talked about his appearance on Regis and Kathy Lee as Quark. And they basically explained yeah. how they got the makeup off so quickly. So you could still, you know, he started the episode as Quark finished it as himself. Uh, and you know, it was kind of not the best thing to get that thing removed so quick. And other characters have heard the same or just basically burns their face or leave stuff on their face. Yeah. So there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. What do you mean? He finished it as himself. So he started the episode like in character on, on Regis and Kathy Lee. He, he went to the opening of the show. Oh. That's Quark with all the Quark makeup and the outfit. Oh, and then wow. by the end of the show, he came back just as Armin Shimmerman. Oh, I see. Great. Good for him. Yeah, he's great. He's a great guy, by the way. We're, we uh, yeah. we had a theater company. Mine was The Road and his was Antius right next to each other. Yeah. I, he, he came to Sasha Smoking Mirrors. Um, really great guy. Really, really great guy. It would be remiss to mention, too, by the way, that, you know, through all these Star Trek appearances, all three of them, this Voyager episode as Tosh is the first time you're actually really on the bridge or really in the ship itself. Because, you know, the first time oh. you're the juggler, you're in the hollow deck, you're in that weird right. place. Your second appearance, you're on, I think it's an away team shuttle is where, you're, where you are. And this time you're yeah. actually on board a ship. So what was it That's like right. to actually be in this kind of a setting and, and you know, really kind of oh. feel the real Star Trek environment? I did. Yeah, I totally did. I remember that. That's kind of a, um, I mean, it's not as big as it looks, you know, because it's, it's a set, you know, don't ruin the illusion, Albie. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, um, there was something, you know, really profound about sitting there. Do you, do you, do you remember when, uh, uh, Al Gore was on SNL and they did a skit of him being in the Oval Office yeah. and he like, you know, even he, he this is, this is what, when he didn't make the presidency, Yeah, they're doing a skit and he kind of like walks in and, sort of sits down and picks up the phone and goes, well, I want to talk to Khrushchev for, you know, whatever. And it was, he was, he was very funny. He kind of played along with with this great skit. That's what it feels like, like being in the Oval Office, you know, being on the bridge, you know, had a, being on the ship, I mean, had really had that kind of amazing feeling. And again, I felt, I felt more, you feel so much more part of the company than when you're, you know, on a, on a film, you know, uh, uh, like, like Tac Tac when you're just shooting in or something. And I did. I did one more episode. Do you remember what I uh, where I came up with the language? Did I tell you that? No, I didn't hear this one. So when I uh, they asked me to audition for another episode um, later, and I and I had broken my hand, and um, a, um, um, Mary Howard, the producer, called me personally, and she said, "We really want you to audition." I said, "Well, I, you know, I broke my hand." And she said, "Well, it's it's a it's a planet that only talks in sign language." Uh, how would you feel about coming up with the language? It was the Ventu people. And would you come up with the language um, and, uh, and and you can teach it to them? And so I, I said, okay. So they, I said, if you pay me the same as if I would be in, 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 in it for a week. And she said, okay. So they paid me and I came up with the language with, with seven, seven of nine uh, was in it and a bunch of other people. And I came up with a sign language for this planet, the Ventu people. And it was only they only spoke with their left hand because my hand was in a cast. <laughs> so this entire this entire planet only spoke with their left hand doing sign language. So that so, is that is your secret fourth Star Trek appearance. That's not really credited yeah, oddly enough. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, and I, um, I, I was on the set, you know, I was sitting there with the director and everyone else. I, I had to bring my own chair. <laughs> they told me to get a chair. So I got one of those fold out chairs, you know, you take to the beach. Yeah. And I still have it. I only use it that, that one time on Star Trek, but you know, I got to sit in a chair and get paid, you know, a weekly rate and <laughs> teach everyone this sign language. I'm trying to figure out, like, you know, what was the most challenging role in this case? Because uh, it sounds like this might have been, you know, the in some ways the easiest because you're not sitting in the makeup chair, but also the hardest because you're figuring out an entire language. Well, it was actually not hard to figure out the language. Um, I just ran into it recently and pulled it out of my stuff. Um, uh, it was actually the hardest because I didn't get to be on camera. And um, having to teach, I don't like, it's, it's an awful feeling when you're, you're teaching someone else and you're like, oh, you, you want to be there doing it with them. and so mentally it was it was hard so what would you say uh if your on-screen performances in star trek which was the character that was most meaningful or, or your favorite was it actually tosh um well i think the juggler probably because it was it was the biggest and i worked the longest and i worked the hardest um yeah I, and it was it was i think the juggler was more was was the most famous of them in a way so i would say the juggler yeah because i got to be in it a lot more so the juggler i would say um Tash, I loved, like I say, I just loved him, his soul. Um, Tac Tac was fun, but, you know, he's almost like a robot guy. So what was it? It was probably the least favorite. Um, but like I say, people from Japan like it. So, <laughs> uh, you know, what's interesting if I'm going to psychoanalyze you for a second, because that's what I'm going to do. Uh, you know, the juggler is that very much extroverted outward character who's wearing all the makeup and cover himself. Mm -hmm. But Tash is very much the vulnerable character. And it's interesting that yeah. he's like the one you don't really necessarily like as much. And I wonder if it, it, maybe that's part of it because he's much more vulnerable in a way. No, no, no. I No, I love Tosh. I just, you know, I love Tosh. I, with, I mean, emotionally, I love Tosh the best. Yeah. Um, okay. But the juggler is my favorite because he's in the Star Trek universe. He's the, the most famous. And he actually was, um, to tell you the truth, uh, he, he's, I, somebody once sent me a big... Um, like a big uh, poster of all the famous Star Trek people, and and I, the jugglers in that. Huh. So yeah, I think he's part. He's one. Of, he's he's more famous of the three. So of course that's the one I like best. Ah, oh, see for me, <laughs> I actually liked. Uh, you know, if I could ruminate about this for a second, yeah, you know, I really like Tosh the best because I, I oh. like. Uh, especially the makeup job is great and your performance as him i felt was really great because he felt so sympathetic i mean that was the yeah, thing like the emotion you. was there like i really love that what you did with him and like, the makeup your acting your performance it all just married together wonderfully and uh you know thank you that's just kind of why i was thinking you. about that because you know the juggler as i'm just saying is you know the, he's the the character we talked about at the start of the show he's the magician he's the person hiding behind something he's the jester yeah yeah whereas tash is like something a little bit more human yeah well you make a really good point and, and i have to say then if, if I say which is my favorite um, emotionally, uh, I would say Tosh for definitely. Um, I just meant in the annals of time. Yeah. <laughs> the juggler will be remembered, I think, probably more than Tosh. So um, in, in going back to like what I first said when we very first started this being seen, you know, um, for some reason, that's been my, you know, for my driving goal since I was a little tiny kid. So. <laughs> but that's a really good point i think there are two sides of the coin one is it's like acting like i said being emotional and being real or is it performing you know it's always uh those two different sides of a coin i mean it kind of reminds me of uh something i just talked to with thomas capacci in an interview i did recently on this show and that's you know he said uh you know the the masks of comedy and drama they are side by side mm. mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They are partners in this. So, uh, you know, aside from that, though, you know, we do have one other Star Trek connection I want to talk about before we wrap things up here. And that would be on Castle, where you were directed by Jonathan Frakes. Yeah, what a great guy. Another great guy. Um, yeah, I, like, I mean, I had a chance to talk with him and I really enjoyed you know, spending time with him discussing his directorial style. But I'd love to hear it from you. What was it like to be directed by him? And what do you remember about the way he directed you? Well, first of all, what did he say about directing me? Because I'm probably uh, he probably talked a lot about me. Um, he raved about you. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I'll just say that that he's he's the most unassuming. Uh, you know, I, I keep saying nice things about people, but it's true. I mean, I've what's got, wrong I, with you? You gotta, you gotta give me some dirt or something. I know. Well, I, I, I I've been keeping the dirt out because I don't want to say dirt out loud. But great guy. I love Jonathan Franks. Um, Again, Castle was a pretty it was a pretty neat episode. Um, I not at all the kind of role I thought I would get, but it's always really fun being the sympathetic guy who ends up being the killer. Um, I've, I've had a bunch of those for some reason, but um, it was it was literally uh, I did not think I was going to get it. I, as in most roles, I don't know if other actors feel this way, but as in most roles, the ones that I think I'm going to get, I never get. Uh, the ones I don't think I'm going to get, I get. And I remember when my agent called me and said, you got Castle. I thought you meant I'm going to be performing at the Magic Castle. And and I was like, oh, did did Jack call you? Jack's the booker. She's like, Jack who? I said, Goldfinger from the castle. She said, no, no, the Castle TV show. And I said, Castle TV show. Oh, wait, did I audition yesterday? Yeah, I got that. So um, complete. But Nathan Fillion, I was a huge fan of Nathan Fillion because um, of Firefly. Uh, um and my friend Ari Gross was on Castle. He played the um, the coroner uh, or the forensic guy, whatever, for uh, for a long time. Um, and what's her name? Uh, the, what's her name? The woman who played the other lead in Castle was also very, very nice. And when I asked to take a picture with Nathan Fillion, he was like, I've been waiting for you to ask all day. Like, he literally said that. <laughs> great, great, great time. I, and I love, I, I don't know. What to say about Jonathan Franks, except that he, he is, his style is, um, you know, really um, completely um, uh, warm. And, uh, you know, actors make really good directors because they know how to talk to actors. And a lot of directors don't know how to talk to actors. They'll be like, do it more like this. You know, you're like, well, I don't get, you know, I don't, that doesn't, I, I don't know what that means, you know. Or I had someone say to me once, why can't you do it like you did when you auditioned, you know, or, or something like that? You know, they just make you feel terrible. He, uh, the, the people who know how to talk to actors are just, they, they're almost like coddling. They're like warm. They, 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 you don't, you don't feel directed. You just kind of feel like suggested. And, um, it's kind of like, Oh, I love what you're doing. Um, what if you did a little bit more like, more like this, you know, can you just give it a try, you know, and you feel like, yeah, okay. That's, that sounds like someone I want to, be part of you know it gives you a real good feeling of a camaraderie with them as opposed to being directed by them you know like like when um a clean eastwood uh directs apparently uh because of the horses he, he stopped yelling action because it would scare the horses so he started to just say whenever you're ready and so that's kind of like his acting technique is he could be saying whenever you're ready and so people never felt that that pressure to act you know and uh, Jonathan had that kind of uh, that kind of thing, just really, yeah, okay, whenever you're ready, kind of thing. You know, really easy and and fun experience. So you know, we mentioned uh, about you creating the Ventu language, and I want to come back to that because I also found out, you know, we were kind of doing our pre-interview before this uh, that you're fluent in American Sign Language, and I'd like to hear about that. Well, I uh, 
It started because I got cast in um, Romeo and Juliet with Deaf West Theater and uh, I, as a Mercutio. And the theme was a circus. So um, Mercutio was a tightrope walker and I, I, I'm a tightrope walker. So we had a tightrope set up and everything. But the, some, of the, some of the actors were deaf and some were, were hearing actors. Um, the deaf ones, such as Troy, who won an Oscar, for Coda uh, was Romeo. I was I was a Mercutio. Uh, so, so literally, kind of evenly matched. So some people could hear, some people uh, couldn't hear. And but we had to do sign language with our regular language. So I was doing two languages at once. I was doing, you know, speaking Shakespeare, and I was doing sign language. So uh, I learned it for that, and I learned it very, you know, a, a lot. A lot of a lot of people were Paul Racy, who uh, was actually also in the movie. Um, Sound of Metal and was nominated for an Oscar was was uh, my teacher, and in fact I just saw a picture of, of Troy and, and Paul Racy on Facebook yesterday. Anyway, so um, uh, they told me that at the time that Mercutio is very he's very uh, flowerful language, but he is everything he says is innuendo, so there's no innuendo in sign language. So he, they said you could either say you know I want to screw you, or you could say you're a beautiful flower. You know, like it's like there, well, that that's not a good 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 uh, comparison, but but basically, Shakespeare was very dirty, and which by the way, the deaf community is very dirty. They they love they love crude and 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 body signs, and so Shakespeare was like that. It was a, it's a perfect match. So they said to me, "Do you want to talk in flowery language, or do you want to go the base? You know, really get in there with the the grit and the dirt." And I was like, "Yeah, grit and dirt." So. All of my stuff was like real sign language that was just, you know, really crude. And the audience, but my language was very far. So the the hearing people in the audience would be enjoying what I was saying. But the deaf people would be laughing hysterically. And they would just look at them like, what are they laughing at? Like, it's like I had a secret language just with the deaf people in the audience. And so it was pr- profoundly great. I mean, Shakespeare, being able to be in the Shakespeare play is just it's phenomenal. It, it he hooks you like like claws the language. You know, you never forget the language. You know, if it were done, when it's done, to well, it were done quickly. Like it just it all is just there forever. Um, it's it's poetry, but it it just sticks in you. So Mercutio was was beautiful and wonderful to play. And Troy, like the funniest guy. You know, um, uh, they they would say you know they would say uh, <laughs> they would tell girls. Like every for every girl would always say, "How do you say nice to meet you?" And and they would say, "Nice to meet you." But actually, they're saying nice to screw you, um, because it's a very similar sign. This is screw, and this is me. So um, and there, Troy was like that all the time. Everything he said was like that. And it was he was the funniest guy. If you ever saw his Oscar speech or his SAG speech, or all he won all the awards. There were always stuff like that, you know. Um, Anyways, then I got to audition for to play Marley Matlin's husband for Desperate Housewives, and uh, they knew I knew sign language, and I worked with uh, Bob Hilterman, another guy on the show who's deaf, to for my audition. And then when I got to the audition, I forgot everything, and I completely just made it up. But luckily, no one in the room um, knew sign language, so <laughs> no, I booked it, and uh, and I had a great time to play Marley Matlin's husband. Before I actually shot, I worked with him again and, and got it down. So because it's very, very specific when you do sign language. Like I had to do worm and I would do worm like this. And they, they would go, no, no, no. It's like this. 
And I would go like this. They go, no, no, it's like this. And you I go like this. And then we go, you know, he can't do warm. <laughs> you know, but do something else for him. You know, it's so weird because they they are very and also, but they're very mining, you know, they're very expressive. It's all about in their face, you know, and so it's all about finding the right signs for the right actor. So a lot of people, you know, there are certain signs like mother, father, but but there are a lot of signs that people make up. And if you ever see Coda, Troy's making up a lot of those signs, uh, like I want to cut his balls off. And he's making up all those signs um, himself because that's who he is. And it's a great language and a beautiful language. And, you know, if you don't know it and you're around them, you, you, you feel like you're another country because you know you're not you're not part of it so if you're with deaf people it's really really pays to learn learn the language all right lb as we come to a wrap here i want a lightning round a few questions with you real quick so no time to think you just got to answer so best gig you ever had worst gig you ever had uh best gig i ever had um oh suddenly susan i was a catherine griffin's husband for two years uh Worst gig I ever had, Vengeance Unlimited, because Michael Madsen uh, was was a cop or something playing a dentist. And he ate right, it was right after lunch, and he ate like this, this really spicy, you know, like onion hot dog, and then got right in my face to do it. And I always to this day think he did it on purpose. All right, how about a moment from your performing career that was most challenging for you, but became the most rewarding? God, I I I can't, I, I, I feel like all of the performances that are, I know this is, this is a cop-out, but all the performances that are the most rewarding always start out as the most challenging. And you, you, you start them by thinking, there's no way I'll ever do, I'll ever get through this. And when you do, it's, you know, it, it's an incredible feeling. Um, uh, I, I, I will say one thing that popped into my mind. My agent asked me to audition for a SCAR for the musical uh, and I can't sing. And he said, Oh, you don't, you're not going to have to sing. You're just going to, you're just going to go and do the acting part. And so, but then again, they sent me the sides and it was a song. It was Scar's song, you know, from Lion King. And so I learned it, you know, I, I learned it you know, really well and I, and I can't sing, but I learned it. And I went to audition. I learned from Jeremy Irons version. I went to audition and I heard people in the next room belting, belting, like they're doing opera. And when I came in, I was way, way beyond you know, out of my depth. And also when you audition for musical, they don't play the melody. They play the thing in the background and you're singing the melody, which I cannot do. So the director said to me, um, okay, first I tried it. Then he's like, oh, he said to his, his piano player, you know what? Just play, play the melody for him. So they played the melody and I did it. And he said, good job. Good job, Albie. And it was kind of like telling a, a you know, a, three-year-old that he did potty training well it's just uh i left that knowing okay that's but you know what it made me feel like i'm gonna learn to sing one day because that's what i got fired from a play once um because the director didn't think i could act and that's what made me take larry moss's acting class and i became a very good actor because of that experience so yeah i guess that's the answer to your question that play i got fired from uh, was ended up being the best thing that happened to me a lot of round way to get there but i got there we got there eventually. It's a, it's a journey yeah. that counts, right? Yeah. Uh, all right. So how about most valuable piece of advice someone ever told you, whether that was about acting or about life, that you still think about and use today? Can I curse? Go for it. Don't give a fuck what other people think. Uh, I think that's like the most powerful, profound thing you can, you can do in life. And, uh, you know, you, you just follow your dreams. I mean, this is a cliche, but I mean, I, I'm I'm living proof that you could do whatever you want. I mean, you know, 
no one thinks being a magician or an actor is something you could ever really do, but you can, you can do whatever you want. And also find the thing inside you, the thing inside you that is the thing that makes you special. It's usually the thing you're most afraid of. It's usually the thing you're most, you're, you most don't want to show anybody, but that thing that you don't want to show anybody is what makes you who you are. And that makes you beautiful. And that makes you valuable to this, to this planet. And last question, Alvi, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh, well, I got this. I got a hat. Um, I'm jealous. uh, I never thought about myself being part of the Star Trek universe. The way you put it, it's like when someone says to a a new actor in the Marvel universe, how does it feel being in the Marvel? I've never considered myself part of the Star Trek universe. So you saying that is probably the best thing about it. Because now I feel like I'm part of the Star Trek universe. Thank you. Hey, it's very true. I mean, every role counts, and you were three of those roles, so that definitely counts a lot. It goes a long yeah. way, and then they are pretty memorable episodes also. And, you know, as we now wrap things up here, you know, I want to just go back to what we said earlier and what we've said throughout this interview, which is about you becoming a performer to be seen and to be validated. And just, you know, let's put some perspective on this as we come to a close, because just think about it, right? I mean, Angela Lansbury does her shots with you. She doesn't have to, but she did. John Lipgow gives you tickets to a show, brings you backstage. Didn't have to, but he did. There's all these stories you told me today on this show where you have definitely been seen and, and your work and what you've done has been validated. And again, same with Star Trek. I mean, you are part of the Star Trek universe. You are part of this family. Whether you realize it or not, you are there. So you are certainly being seen and people know what you've done. So, and even if people didn't, you still have been seen for sure. So I hope that, you know, just getting today to talk about some of these experiences does let you realize that, you know, you have been seen and you will continue to be seen. So you have done excellent work throughout your career and you continue to do excellent work. I'm, I'm very grateful to spend this time with you today and uh, I hope it's been as fun for you as it has been for me. Oh my God. It's been more fun for me than it has for you, uh, Matthew. Thank you for saying that. You, you brought it full circle and uh, you're, you're wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, I appreciate it very, very, very much today, uh, Alvi. This has been real, like I said, for real, wonderful. And I wish you did conventions because I, I want to get an autograph. So we'll got to find a way to get you back <laughs> into the scene somehow. We'll get you back in the circuit. Give me back in the circuit or I'll come to New York and give you an autograph. Let's do that. All right. Well, Alvi, right. thank you so much. And uh, Matthew, thank you. As they say, of course, live long and prosper. Live long and prosper, man. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond, and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.